Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 126 of the new Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and we are back for another week and another what we hope will be awesome episode of the podcast to bring all of you good Folks, I want to start right off the top by mentioning this week's guest, a conversation I'm definitely excited for in anticipation of the upcoming Hockey Hall of Fame induction ceremony. We'll get to that in a second. But our guest this week is going to help us dive into, of course, the notable New York Rangers legend who's going into the Hall of Fame next week. That would be Henrik Lundqvist. And to talk about Lundqvist and give us some insight into the work ethic and the man and the behind-the-scenes stuff that I'm sure a lot of you will really enjoy hearing is going to be one of the guys who backed him up for a handful of years. And that's Marty Biron, who played 16 seasons in the NHL, including his Final Four with the Rangers. I wanted to make sure that we devoted a segment to that. Because as I mentioned, that Hall of Fame induction is coming up Monday night in Toronto. I've got a pretty neat story coming as well. I've been reaching out to not just Marty, but a handful of Lundquist's former teammates. So I will have a story coming out Monday morning with even more insight into the man and the thing that stood out to teammates as far as what made him as great as he was. But first... Before we get to that conversation with Marty Biron, let's talk about some current day New York Rangers. They are 2-0-1 since we last spoke, now 9-2-1 on the season, winning nine of their first 12 games. An outstanding start to the season in many respects. They're riding an eight-game point streak right now, and we're going to get into each of those last three games that we've seen in the past week since the previous episode. But I got to start with the biggest bits of news that have come out in the past week. And that is, of course, the injury bug hitting the Rangers in a pretty big way. It started last Thursday, that game against Carolina, that highly anticipated Metro Division showdown against the Hurricanes. Adam Fox goes down in the first period an open ice collision with Sebastian Ajo. I've heard a lot of different takes on whether it was a clean hit, whether it was a dirty hit. I I thought Mike Rupp, who I follow on Twitter, I'm sure a lot of you do as well, former player for the Rangers and several other teams, and now I think a pretty solid analyst. He put out a video where I thought he explained it pretty well as far as it didn't look like Ajo was intentionally, I think, sticking his leg out or trying to injure Fox, but it did look like 
his back was turned to the play, and as the puck gets behind him, he was trying to slow Fox down, and by sort of trying to get a little piece of him, ends up, I don't think it was quite knee to knee the more I've looked at the replay. It looked more like Ajo's knee hit the bottom part of Fox's thigh. Of course, it could have caused an issue with Fox's right knee. We don't know for sure, as we know in the NHL, not just with the Rangers, but every single team is very secretive when it comes to revealing injury news or injury specifics. But it knocked Fox out for the game in the first period, now has him on long-term injured reserve. Then second period comes, or actually at the end of the first period is when the injury happened, but he came out of the game in the second period, was Philip Heedle, the Rangers' second-line center, who it's not as clear and easy to pinpoint exactly when he got hurt, but I feel somewhat confident that it stemmed from a collision with Jesper Fast toward the end of the first period. It wasn't as jarring or obvious as the Ajo Fox collision, but I did notice, I remember specifically watching, the Rangers were trying to get the puck out of their defensive zone, and Foss just kind of bumped into, I mean, it was a hit, it definitely seemed like it it stood Hedl up for a moment and sort of struck him, but it wasn't like he got knocked down or lit up or, you know, made the whole crowd go wild or anything like that, but I saw the, the collision if we can call it that. And right away, it looked like Hedl sort of stood up and and was a little taken aback by it. And he then went to pass the puck and the pass was way off target. It just, the whole sequence looked a little off to me. And then he comes back out for the beginning of the second period, gets a couple shifts and ends up exiting the game. And of course, the concern with Hedl is is always going to be head injury. Now, we don't know for sure if that's what it is. The Rangers are just calling it an upper body injury. But now you have him on regular injured reserve, which is a much shorter timetable than Fox, but still a concerning injury there. Now they've been without both of those guys for a couple games. And then the next day, Friday, after that win over Carolina, I hear from a source that, Igor is dealing with a little something as well, and we saw the Rangers make a couple call-ups on that Friday, including Louis Deming, the goaltender from Hartford, and now Igor hasn't played in two consecutive games as well. So it goes without saying that these are huge losses for the Rangers. Igor, I have to say, seems to be the least concerning I I will have an update for you guys after Wednesday's practice. I'm recording this first segment of the show on Wednesday morning. The Rangers are going to have an optional practice today, so I have a feeling we might not see Igor in that setting. We might, but we're probably not going to see a handful of guys who are dealing with little bumps and bruises and things like that, but I certainly will ask Peter Laviolette for an update on Igor. The good news with him is that he did practice in part with the team on Monday, kind of a light practice day for him. He left the ice earlier than a lot of the other guys. That was one of those longer, harder practices from LaViolette after the team had had an off day the day before. So they didn't push Igor too hard, but it definitely was encouraging to see him out there with the guys and sort of not being hidden. And he did seem to be moving okay in the net. And then he skated on his own Tuesday then obviously did not dress in the game on Tuesday night against the Red Wings. 
We'll see now what the next step is going to be. Does he play Thursday night? Is he the option for this next game against the Minnesota Wild? I'm not so sure. I don't think you necessarily need to rush him. Jonathan Quick has been pretty solid for the Rangers so far, but there doesn't seem to be any long-term concern. You wouldn't see him on the ice in any kind of a practice setting if this was a really serious type of thing. I think they're just being kind of cautious with him. As for the other two, Hedl, as I mentioned, placed on IR, which makes him eligible to come off as soon as Sunday night's game, which will be against the Columbus Blue Jackets. But I have to tell you, I have my concerns. I mentioned that there's a history of head injuries there. I know he's had multiple concussions in his career. We saw last year he missed some time because of a concussion, came back with that tinted visor because he was having some trouble as far as sensitivity to light following that concussion. And the scary part about this is that if you've read much about this or you're informed much about concussions, typically the more you have them, the worse they get. And a lot of times the easier you attain them. It it seems that if you have a history of concussions and you've had multiples, especially in a short period of time, that it's easier for you to then get another one. And unfortunately, I think there's concern that that might be the territory we're entering with Hedl right now. He also missed time during training camp. We don't know exactly what that injury was, but I heard whispers that there were concerns of a concussion there as well. So you really feel for the kid because when he plays, he's been very effective, especially the last season and a half or so going back to those 2022 playoffs where he was really a force and an important player for the Rangers on that run to the Eastern Conference Final. I think that is when he seemed to sort of figure something out. Something seemed to click with him during those playoffs. Of course, has a career high in goals and points last season, gets himself the new contract, was off to a pretty solid start so far this season as well, and now he's on the shelf again. So, Concussions are no joke. I I don't want to hear anybody talk about soft or any of that nonsense. This is something very serious, and you have to be concerned for the guy right now, and I'm sure they're not going to rush him back if that is what he's dealing with right now. So he hasn't skated yet as far as Tuesday, the last time I checked on it. Maybe he skates Wednesday. That would certainly be a step in the right direction. But Whether or not he'll be able to play right when he comes off the IR on Sunday, that is still very much to be determined. And then Fox, it sounds like he's looking at the lengthiest absence out of these guys, these three at least, right now, because the Rangers placed him on long-term injured reserve, which means he has to miss a minimum of 10 games and 24 days. That puts his earliest possible return date at November 29th, so less than a month away. And there does seem to be some hope and some optimism that his absence won't extend too far beyond that. I I asked Peter Laviolette on Tuesday if he thinks that this is going to be a really long thing that could keep him out for multiple months, and he said he does not believe that that is the case. He was very leery and cautious about not putting an exact timetable on it or not making any predictions on it, which, you know, you understand that, but at least he seemed to sort of clear up this is not putting his season in jeopardy. This is not something where the Rangers expect him to miss you know, 40, 50, 60 games, something like that. I think that they're hopeful that they'll get him back at some point not too long after 
that November 29th earliest return date. And a fair target, you might say, is that you can get him back certainly before Christmas. So it doesn't sound like this is a situation where he needs surgery or a situation where there's something really, really long-term and serious. But obviously, whatever it is, it's serious enough to keep him out for at least these 10 games. And undoubtedly, this is one of the Rangers, I think, four most important players. You could argue three, two. For me, the four most important players on the team, and you could debate the order, would be Igor Fox, Panarin, and Mika Zibanejad. So losing any of those four is a huge blow. And Hedl's a huge blow as well because... It really, as far as the depth of their lineup down the middle and the moving parts now with the centers, it leaves a big, big void in the middle of this lineup not having Heedle right now. Trocek, I think, is very capable of sliding up into that second-line center role. I think he's having, quietly, a really solid season so far. Had a couple of goals in that win over Detroit on Tuesday night. More than capable of chipping in some offense, but I think his all-around impact defensively, his forechecking, his face-offs. He's been a go-to PK guy for them so far this season. Trocek, to me, has been really solid, and I think there's no issue at all plugging him in as a second-line center. The problem is what that does to the bottom six, because now you really don't have a great option to fill that third-line center void. They are trying Nick Benino there right now, and Benino, for what you want from a guy like that, he's very solid defensively blocking shots, bringing those gritty elements, but he's best served, we all know, in a fourth-line role. He's not a playmaker. I, I, I went and talked to him the other day, and he was joking with me a little bit about, well, you know, I'm moving up. I wish I could say that now I'm just going to turn it on and score 40 goals, but that's not really my game. So he knows what he is. We know what he is, and third-line center is probably not the best spot for him, but your other options, Barclay Goudreau, I thought probably would have been the first guy to get a crack at it, but they kept him on the fourth line for that game on Tuesday. And they tried Johnny Brodzinski there for a game over the weekend. That didn't work out so great either. So the bottom six, I think, is really where you feel that absence because of the trickle-down effect from Heedle being out. So definitely, definitely some big concerns for the Rangers as far as being able to replace those guys. I also quickly want to touch on the cap ramifications of this because I've been getting a ton of questions about that. And basically what you need to understand is Heedle being on IR, the Rangers are still on the hook for his full cap. It Putting a guy on regular injured reserve does not save you anything as far as cap money. All it does is allow you to call other guys up, but you have to have the cap space to do it. Now, the Rangers did open up significant cap space by putting... Adam Fox on long-term injured reserve. You basically get the equivalent of that guy's average annual value in additional money now to add on to your roster. So Fox makes $9.5 million per season. All of a sudden now, the Rangers have opened up $9.5 million in cap space. Now, a lot of people are excited by that. They think that that's a, a great thing for the team. Obviously, in my opinion, you would much rather have a healthy Fox than that extra cap space. But the other thing to remember about that cap space is as soon as you activate Adam Fox, that 9.5 will vanish. So I see a lot of people talking about signing someone, one name in particular who might wear number 88, might have been here for a little while last season. You got to remember that you could go out and sign him right now, sure. But as soon as you activate Fox, 
you have a big problem on your hands and you would have to clear some other salary. And in a lot of ways, this is going to make the Rangers salary cap situation moving forward even tighter because while you're using your LTIR pool money, that extra $9.5 million that we're talking about, you cannot accrue cap space while you're dipping into that pool money. So every day that the Rangers are over the cap and using that money that they get from Fox being on long-term injured reserve means that day they're not accruing any extra cap space as we look ahead toward the trade deadline, which is really the ultimate target date that you're trying to accrue as much cap space as you can for. So in the short term, yes, they can call up Johnny Brodzinski and they can call up Connor Mackey and they can call up Louis Domingue and they could potentially go out and sign someone and have them on their roster with no issues for the short term right now. But as soon as you activate Fox, that cap space disappears and all those days that you had these extra players on the roster, well, those were days that were costly because you could not accrue any extra cap space that day. So what we're seeing the Rangers do Right after Tuesday night's game, they sent Brodzinski, Mackey, and Deming to Hartford. Now, did those guys actually go to Hartford? I don't think so. It was more just a paper transaction because by not using that extra $9.5 million in LTIR pool money that they get from Fox being on there, as long as you stay below the cap, you can accrue money on those days. So what you're going to see the Rangers do, I believe, while Fox is there, is on off days, they're going to send guys down to make sure that they can pick up some extra days of salary cap accrual in that way. But on game days, when they add those extra guys onto the roster, well, those game days are going to be days when they can't accrue any cap space. So I hope I'm not confusing you. This is sort of complicated, and I hope I'm not making this any more complicated than it needs to be. But I wanted to try to explain this, that what this probably means, because we had projected at the beginning of the season that the Rangers at the trade deadline would accrue about $3 million in additional cap space. That number is going to be lower now because of these game days where they're over the cap using that LTIR money. So right now, the pace that the Rangers are at for the trade deadline because of this Fox injury, they're probably going to be more like $2 million, $2.5 million extra cap space by the time they get there, depending on how much time Fox misses. So overall, as far as being able to go out and make a big move at the trade deadline, this is going to hurt the Rangers, I believe. This is going to give them a little less money to spend. Right now, they could go out and sign someone in theory, but again, once you activate Fox, that money vanishes, and then... You've got a crunch on your hands. Then you've got a problem on your hands. And unless they're going to trade a fairly big salary, which I'm not really sure there's any obvious candidates that they're looking to do that with right now, it's probably not realistic for them to go out and make a big signing right now. If Fox is going to miss the entire regular season, that would be a different story. We've seen other teams manipulate this situation that way when they've had that opportunity. But I don't think the Rangers have any intention of Fox missing the entire regular season. And if he's going to come back, then you have to make sure that your cap situation is manageable for when you do activate him. So all things to consider here as you're drawing up your mock lineups and you're drawing up signings and you're drawing up trades. All right, let's move away from that stuff. I feel like I maybe even confused myself a little bit there, but hopefully you guys followed along. Meanwhile, let's get to the games. And the important thing to talk about 
after assessing all of this injury stuff is that the Rangers through two games of missing Fox and Heedle and Igor are showing signs that they can hopefully weather this storm because even without Fox and Heedle for most of that Thursday game against the Hurricanes, they still found a way to win a really tough, gritty, defensively sound game. Will Cooley gets the game-winning goal and a very cool rookie moment for him coming through in the third period to give the Rangers that 2-1 to lead. And overall, I thought the Rangers really gutted that win out. I thought that was a really gut-check kind of a moment for them, and they showed their resiliency once again. I thought Jacob Trubo was an absolute beast in that game, picked up some big ice time, block shots, hits, just playing a really big-time game for them on top of having the primary assist that set up Will Cooley for that game winner. So Truba, I thought, really stepped up in that situation, and I should mention right here while I have an opportunity that I did write a story about Truba now in his second year as Rangers captain, put a lot of legwork into that one, talked to several of his teammates about how they're seeing him sort of grow more comfortable in that role, also had a conversation with Truba about that. My impression just observing him is that he seems very at ease and comfortable in that position right now. I I thought he did for the most part last season as well, but as with anything in life, you're going to learn from your experiences. You're going to draw from your experiences. You're going to reflect on how you handled certain situations and probably be better for it moving forward. And I think that is definitely the case with Jacob Truba. I think that just the ways that I see him navigating this captaincy, you know, for me, it's mostly the public stuff or the the post-game interviews, but the observations in the locker room and at practice as well. And then hearing from his teammates about the stuff that he's doing more behind the scenes, it seems like he's really sort of blossoming in that role. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, on the outside looking in, look at this guy and just think of the big hits, and they sort of see him as maybe this goon or this guy who's just headhunting all the time. But he's really a much more thoughtful, I think, gentle kind of guy if you get to know him a little bit. And I think that that is the way that a lot of his teammates see him. And I think he's pretty strategic with how he handles different relationships and and maybe what he says after a game or when he pulls a teammate aside in the locker room, things like that. So I tried to dive into a lot of that in the story that you can check out on loha.com slash sports slash Rangers. And I do think that that added layer of comfort could have him poised to have a better season. He had some struggles last year. And while He hasn't outwardly said that's because he was dealing with the pressure of the captaincy. I do think that now with a year of that under his belt, he's probably in a better position to perform better on the ice as well. So Trubo definitely a standout in that game against Carolina. Then the Rangers go to Minnesota on Saturday. And even though they escaped with a loser point in that game, they really played poorly for, what, 55 out of the 65 minutes if you include overtime. They were outshot 40 to 18. They were out attempted 98 to 41. They allowed 20 high danger scoring chances, according to Natural Stat Trick. And it just seemed like for the majority of that game, they were just getting peppered with chances from the Minnesota Wild. The four check that has been really solid for a lot of the season, I thought disappeared for long stretches in that game. It looked like the Wild were able to fly through the neutral zone and really put consistent pressure on the Rangers in the offensive zone. And just 
sort of one of those efforts where you scratch your head a little bit. They've had a couple of those, that Nashville game earlier in the season. So the good news is that they seem to rally and bounce back. They don't let that snowball and have one bad game turn into multiple bad games. And I also think it's worth noting that in this case of the Minnesota game, part of it was definitely mental. They were missing Igor Heedle, Fox, also missing Barclay Goudreau, who didn't attend that game for the birth of his child. And so I think they were reeling a little bit from that. As much as these guys are professional athletes and sort of robotic with their next man up mentality, there's going to be a little carryover effect. There's going to be a little bit of a, you know, you look behind you and a Norris Trophy winner isn't there anymore. A Vesna Trophy winner isn't there anymore. Your second line center isn't there anymore. And so... That's definitely going to be something that I think they have to process and they have to move forward with as quickly as they can. And maybe there's a little carryover effect from that in that game against the Wild. But I also think an even bigger part of the disappointing performance in Minnesota was physical because the Rangers had come off of that really grueling 11-day road trip out west where they were bouncing around at different time zones and playing a lot of different games and came out of that trip brilliantly 5-0, and but definitely were worn down. Talking to some of the guys in the locker room last night, they just felt like they couldn't get their sleep schedules back on track. All these different plane rides where you're getting into these new cities at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and having to adjust and then get ready and play a game the next day. It's a lot to deal with. I told you guys I was tired. You can only imagine how they were feeling. And then I think to come home for only one game and just when maybe you're starting to feel settled a little bit, you got to get right back on a plane and go for another quick road game. I certainly think there were some physical carryovers from that as well. So that disappointing performance raised concerns about coping with the injuries, particularly because they're losing two key offensive weapons at a time when their five-on-five scoring has kind of been lagging behind. But the response, as I touched on, you got to be very encouraged by that because any little hint of adversity so far this season, the Rangers seem to rise up and respond to. And that's what they did in this most recent game, a 5-3 to three win over the Detroit Red Wings on Tuesday night. A really, at least for the first two periods, thorough performance from the Rangers. I mean, defensively, they shut down what has been a high-powered Red Wings attack so far this season. Through the first two periods, they only allowed 12 shots on goal. They dominated possession. They built a 5-0 lead over the course of those first two periods. The power play, absolutely humming. They get another couple quick power play goals, one from Kreider, who now has nine goals in total through 12 games this season, and then another one from Trocek. They scored those two power play goals in a total of 40 seconds. So especially that top power play unit right now just seems to be really, really buzzing. And then you also get the five-on-five offense. They showed a lot more signs of life at five-on-five, I thought, in that game against the Red Wings the other night. And that has been a concern. If there's one thing you're going to point to with this Rangers team through these first handful of games, it's that they haven't been scoring a ton at five on five. We saw Laviolette tweak the lines a little bit. I think we'll get more into that later on in the show. I don't know if that was the reason. I think that might have been a little bit of a wake-up call more than anything. I don't know if the specific moves, this guy being in this spot, specifically Blake Wheeler moving up to the top line. I don't know if that really was a jump start as much as just the signal to the players that, 
hey, we need a little more out of you guys in these even strength situations. And so the Rangers, for only the third time this season, scored three or more five-on-five goals in a game. And they also go six for six on the penalty kill. Let's not forget about that. So really, all facets of the game, the Rangers for two periods played really well. The third period... We've seen this habit creep in a little bit, and I know it's something that Laviolette wants to address, that when they have these third-period leads, instead of continuing to press, continuing to push and try to get more goals, they seem to be more content to sit back on their heels and defend more than they should be. They lose that aggressive mindset that they seem to have for the first 40 minutes, and they end up giving up three third-period goals to put a little bit of a damper on the night. But overall, they come away with the win again, have now won nine out of the first 12 games. And you can't really be too displeased with that. That's an excellent start to the season. They're sitting in first place in the Metro division. And now we'll see how they continue to deal with these injuries. And they hope at least be able to replicate what they did for the first 40 minutes of that Detroit game. If they can do that, that's certainly going to be the formula to overcome the absence of Fox and the absence of Heedle. All right, we've been going long enough here. Let's get to our conversation with Marty Biron. Talk a little Henrik Lundqvist, probably talk a little Rangers and get his impression on the current team as well. And then I'll be back after that segment to take some of your Twitter questions. Now let's welcome into the show a man who knows his hockey and certainly knows his Henrik Lundqvist. He (laughs) was a goalie in the NHL for 16 seasons, including the Final Four with the Rangers, where he was a teammate of Henrik Lundqvist's. So definitely want to get his thoughts before Henrik goes into the Hockey Hall of Fame this weekend. He's also an NHL analyst for the Sabres on MSG Network. He's a host. I'm going on his show actually later today for Sirius XM NHL Radio, TSN. A lot of different places. I'm probably not mentioning them all, but that would be Marty Biron. So, Marty... (laughs) Thank you for coming on the show. I do appreciate the time. How are you doing? No, thank you for having me. Love talking Rangers hockey and Henrik Lundqvist stories and everything uh, NHL. So I'm happy to join. Yeah, no, I I do really appreciate it. And I want to start with the Lundqvist stuff because I'm sure you had watched him from afar a bit before you got to New York. But then you get to actually get there and interact with him on a daily basis and be around him on a daily basis. So let's start from the beginning. First impressions, just like what what did you think of him before you got there? And then what did you learn about him once you did get there? So I'll be honest with you. I wasn't the biggest fan of Hank when I was playing against him because he had swagger. He had style. He won a lot of games. And he always, I don't want to say he rubbed it into your face, but if he had a big win, you know, it's like post-game celebration, the fist pump, all of that, the arms up, like, thanking the heavens for the win and the whole thing. Like, I was like, dude, just chill. Like I, and, and when I was in Philly, um, you know, we, I remember one game at the end of the season, we played the Rangers. We hadn't given up a shorthand goal all year. Our power play had been perfect, not given up. And then the Rangers scored. And I remember like he was celebrating cause they beat us. And I was thinking, I don't like this guy. I don't like him. I want to beat him every time I play him. And then I played with the Islanders, which was even worse for the rivalry, New York, New York. So I'm like, I really don't like him. And then I played with him and I'm like, that guy is so cool. He's the nicest guy, works extremely hard. I can understand why he celebrates the wins the way that he does, because he puts so much work before getting 
to the game. So when he finally wins a game and he's done a lot of winning, um, it's like, yeah, I put in the work. I celebrate him. So, um, yeah, I wasn't a big fan of him, but I didn't know him. So, you know, then I got to know him and I was like, well, this guy's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, de definitely a cool guy. But you touched on the work ethic as well. And talking to a lot of his teammates, I was just chatting with Chris Kreider in the Rangers locker room about this before. Everybody raves about the practice habits. Can, can you describe to us what the practices were like with him and, and what made him extra special as far as the work that he put in there? Well, I'll tell you a few different things. Like I never did goalie practices before the regular practice. If practice was at 1030, I stepped on the ice at 1028, 1030 practice. And then I always stayed a little bit after. Um, then I got to New York and all of a sudden with Benny Allaire and Henrik Lundqvist, it's like, no, no, no. 10.30 practice, but we go on the ice at 10 o'clock, the goalies, and we have a half-hour goalie practice. I'm like, okay, then after practice, I'm done, right? Like practice is 10.30 to 11.30, 11.30, I'm done. I've already been on the ice to, since at 10 o'clock. No, Henrik has taken drills at the other end of practice. So I'm like, well, I better take drills those also. And then after a while, I'm like, hang, get off the ice. <laughs> You're starting goalie. You need to get off the ice. I'm the old veteran that's the backup, and I'm tired, and I'm exhausted. I didn't even play last night. I didn't play, like, four of the last five games. And that's what Henrik Lundqvist would do. He would take a ton of breakaways. He loved taking breakaways. And guys loved having that challenge against him to take breakaways. It created such an energy at the end of practice. Usually practice is over. Everybody's like, oh, thank God, we're done. But, no, it was like, hey, let's do breakaways with Hank. And, and so his work ethic was unbelievable. Then he'd be in the gym. And Hank would be on his own program, but he'd be in the gym. I was like, I'm avoiding the gym during the season as much as I can. I'll do my work on the ice. No, Hank would be in the gym doing like abs, stretching, you know, leg work and, and all of that. And be like, he is nonstop. And then he'd be working on his equipment, making sure his pads are good, his gloves is good, his chest and arm. Is he breaking in new gear? I'm like, it's nonstop with him. He's always, always thinking the game, always preparing for the game. Um, his, his Jersey retirement speech was kind of funny when he apologized to Therese about, you know, being angry or, or moody when the season started and hopefully he's not like that anymore. And she gave it like a, a smirk, like, no, hockey's ended, but you're still like that, like that. He's a competitor and he wants to be the best and he puts in the work to be the best. It's funny you mentioned the breakaway stories because Kreider brought up the same thing. He he said that he could specifically remember, I guess, a shootout where you guys had lost. And after the next day at practice, they kept giving him the breakaway shots at the end of practice. And guys were wanting to come off. They wanted to go and undress and finish up for the day. And he kept saying, no, I want more. I want more. And kind of forcing the skaters to keep coming at him with those breakaway opportunities. So it speaks to what you're talking about. Yeah. And and I I played with some pretty special goalies, right? Dominic Hasek, Ryan Miller. Henrik Lundqvist, and all three of those guys, I'd say, they are the hardest working athletes I've ever seen. Like, Dom was the same way. Nobody could beat him in practice. Ryan Miller, man, he was 165 pounds, like, skin and bones, and he would be on the ice for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour after practice, continue to work. Lundqvist, he was the first one that I recall doing shootouts in warm-ups. At the end of warm-up, usually the goalies, there's four or five minutes left. They are off the ice, right? The, the starting goalie's done, needs to go to the room. No, Hank is staying around and doing shootouts in warm-up. I mean, who does that? And now it's a it's a regular practice in the NHL. Not everybody does it. 
but it started with Hank. Hank wanted to always be at his best. There's there's different I, I compare athletes to cars. There's different types of cars in the NHL. There's your big SUVs, there's your, you know, Corvette type. Like Hank was a Formula One. Everything always at the top of its game so that he can be the best all the time. That's what he was. So you've talked about the work ethic. You've talked about being a perfectionist. But from from watching him up close and playing the position yourself, are, are there specific things, whether it's technique, whether it's mental approach, are there specific things that stood out to you that you feel like looking back on it now, that's what made him great? As a fellow goalie, you respected this about his game. Yeah, well, everybody knows Henrik Lundqvist played the game a little deeper in his net. Uh, but he was able to do it because I swear to God, Henrik, when a shot would come, it would be like the Matrix. Like everything in his brain would slow everything down where 99% of the goalies wouldn't be able to react to a high glove shot being that deep in the crease or a low blocker shot. With Henrik, everything slowed down because his his recognition and his ability to read the shooters and read the play was so good that he would always make the saves. I started practicing with him my first year in 2010, 2011, and I'm like, maybe I should try a little deeper. I was getting lit up in practice, like <laughs> lit up. Because for me, it was like I needed to be at the top of my crease. I needed to to try to cover every square inch possible to be able to make saves. Not with Hank. And another thing that allowed him to be so good is his quickness. Man, was he fast. He had great edges. He was extremely fast. And he was just like, even now, you watch this clip of him getting ready for the alumni games. Like, he's so quick. My son's a goalie. He sends me the video. He goes, look, Hank's on the ice. He's still as fast as ever. I'm like, yeah, I'm so jealous. Like, I can't even put my equipment back on because I get, I, I hurt myself and he's so quick on the ice. So those are the two traits, I think, being deep and being so laterally quick that made him special. I see we have another guest appearance here. Yeah, this is my, uh, one of my bulldog. He doesn't like being like left alone. So he's <laughs> busy and he wants to join in. <laughs> All right. Well, he's more than welcome. Uh you, one one thing you touched on, which I think especially the hardcore Rangers fans, which a lot of the listeners are here, you touched on Benny Allaire and the impact that he had with you guys working with him. It seems like no matter who's there now, obviously Henrik was great, but now Igor, we see what he's doing. And it seems like almost every goalie that's come through there has seen improvements under Benny Allaire. Can you give us any insight into a what makes him such a great coach and he's also a side note just a really nice genuine guy but then you know the impact that you think he also made on Lundquist like how you saw those two interacting and working together so I have known Benny uh, but mostly Francois his brother Francois when he was with uh, you know the Canadians and then the uh, uh, the Anaheim Ducks and he worked for my agent at the time so I have known the two brothers and I went to their goalie school when I was 15 16 17 years old I actually went to Switzerland to a hockey school with Francois and was one of his teachers there. Um, but I had never worked with Benny. Benny is, as you said, one of the nicest human you would ever find. Um, you know, he always has a really positive way to look at video, look at mistakes. Uh, and with his, his French accent, like in English, it always sounds really good. Like he'd always say, you know, we try not to have technical mistake. No technical mistake in games. And it was so funny because I would, speak with Benny in French, obviously, but I would always laugh whenever he would say technical mistake, no technical mistake. <laughs> then 
That's what we tried to achieve. And Benny was not one that says, we're not going to talk about shutouts. No. Before the season even started, he's like, guys, we would love to have 10 shutouts between our goalies this year. So, Hank, you get eight, Marty, you get two. We'd be like, that's a high, like, imagine 10 shutouts in 82 games. No, it was a goal to attain. Or we won the lowest goals against average. We won the highest save percentage. We won the Vesna. We won the Jennings Trophy. We won it all. And that's what Benny brought. Like, he brought a little bit of a, hey, let's set our standards way higher than what we normally do. Uh, but before Benny worked with L Henrik Lundqvist, I remember Benny obviously was in Montreal for a little bit. But then he went to Arizona and had Sean Burke. And he totally changed what Sean Burke was and how he played his game. And I always thought, man, this guy... If he's able to do that to a veteran like Sean Burke, imagine what he can do when he grab a, a younger, very talented player. And he did that with Lundqvist. And he did that with Igor Shosturkin. And he had veterans backup. Like, now he has Jonathan Quick. You know, and look at how quick he's playing this year. I was a veteran backup. And look at how he changed my game because I was a veteran. He had, you know, Yaroslav Alak. He had uh, Cam Talbot. He had Chad Johnson. He had so many goaltenders that either younger or older or whatever their skill set was, he's able to work with. And that is the trait of the best goalie coaches around is it's not just what the goalie coaches wants you to do is how he can adjust your game, your style to be more effective. And he's been fantastic. Marty, before I let you go, anything else as far as Henrik goes, whether it's, you know, favorite memories with him, games that you watched him play that stood out to you, the way he is away from the rink, you talked about that coolness and that swagger that he has. I mean, anything else as far as your experience with him that stand out in your memory? I like to think that I had a positive impact on Henrik Lundqvist's career <laughs> for the three and a half years that I was with him. But most importantly for me was year two, 2011, 2012, the year that Hank won the Vesna Trophy. Uh, that season, we played 82 games. We never got pulled. Henrik played 62 games. I played 20. Now, technically, Henrik got pulled in Edmonton early in the season, but it wasn't because of performance. We're actually down 2-1 in that game, and he had skate issues, and he had to leave the game. So, But imagine, John Tortorella is your coach, and for 82 games, you never pull your goaltender. Never. Not once do you think, I got to make a goalie change. So it was a special partnership that we had. It was a special year. And that year I got to sit on the plane next to Henrik. And I like to think that I was really mellow, even kill type of guy. And I got to maybe get him to relax a little bit after games where a bad game or a loss, he would keep with him for hours and hours and hours and sometimes days. Um, I started to have him watch TV shows on the plane we would have the splitter. We'd share an iPad or a computer and watch the same thing. So we watched a lot of Californication and Entourage and Dexter and all of these, like, kind of just get your mind away from the game. And I I think because of that, I think he had his best season ever uh, that season. So I like to think I, I left a positive mark on his, on his career, maybe not on the ice, but maybe more off the ice and being a little bit more uh mellowed after games because we all know he can run really hot <laughs> yeah yeah that's for sure that's for sure maybe you get a shout out in the speech uh marty i really I don't do. i don't think so I think, <laughs> I think he's accomplished so much uh there's many more people you should thank before thanking uh me for 
for setting up the iPad on the plane. I think that's at the bottom of the totem pole right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do appreciate it. Before I let before I let you go, any just quick thoughts on what you're seeing from from this year's Rangers as far as where they're at winning nine of the first twelve? Obviously, the results are pretty good so far. But any, anything standing out to you about what you're seeing from this team? What I like is that they trust Jonathan Quick to play more, so that's going to give Igor some rest. And when Igor's rested, he's obviously one of the top goaltender in the NHL. Um, a lot of production from different type of guys. Look, we, you know, Kreider on the power play is still a beast, but we seem to think the Rangers are Zibanejad, Panarin, uh, Fox type of team. But now Trocek is going. Lafreniere's had a decent start. Capocacco's looking good. You've got now multiple pieces, right? I really like their team. I think they're deep, both at forward and on defense. They're using both goaltenders. Um, I want to give a shout-out to my buddy, Michael Pecco, who's joined Peter Laviolette's uh, coaching staff. And Pex was excellent with the Rochester Americans, with Seth Appert and Mike Weber and their success the last couple of years. So I think uh, I like what uh, what Lavi's added and Phil Osley and Michael Pecco. And I, I think they're uh, they're they're – I don't want to say the team to beat in the Metropolitan Division right now, but they're definitely one of the top two, three teams in the Eastern Conference. Awesome. Awesome, Marty. Well, thank you again. I'll talk to you in a couple hours. Make sure you check them out. Sirius NHL Radio, covering the Sabres for MSG Network and all the other places. I, I do appreciate the time, and thanks for sharing some stories with us. I love joining the show today, and yeah, we'll talk to you in a few hours. <laughs> And we're back. Man, oh man, Marty Biron is a ball of energy, a lot of fun, definitely flourishing in this new media environment that he's been working in You know, now for quite a while, but he's definitely a big personality, definitely a lot of fun to talk to. I knew he would have some great stories to share. As I mentioned, I've been on his show a few times, going on it again later today, and as I've been going through the rounds and reaching out to some people who played with Lundquist and had texted with him the other day, threw the idea out there for him to come on the show, and he loved it and was excited about it, and I think you heard a lot of that come through in that interview, so really do appreciate his time. And again, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I will have a nice Lundquist feature coming out on Monday morning before his Hall of Fame induction later that night. So plenty more Lundquist content coming your way. But in the meantime now, we're going to shift gears and answer some questions more about the present-day Rangers. And we are going to start with this first one, which comes from Snark Messier, who wrote, Vince, in your professional opinion... Do you think this is a sink or swim season for Capo Caco? Do you see the Rangers potentially moving him at any point? Moreover, what players, if any, do you feel will look to target at the deadline? Finally, will we see Othman emerge from the AHL at some point this year, or will he stay there all season? Well, Snark, you basically snuck in three questions for the price of one here, but they're all... I guess a little bit related, so we'll try to hit on all three. But let's definitely start with Kako. I knew this was going to be a hot topic with this week's set of questions, which is why I didn't really address it in the first segment of the show. But we saw for the first 
first 10 games, I guess you could mostly say, because that's really when the lineup was almost completely intact and unchanged. We saw that one spot on the fourth line right wing where Tyler Pitlick got a few early starts and then it transitioned to Jimmy VC. We saw Ryan Lindgren miss one game due to a minor injury, but otherwise the lineup basically did not get touched by Peter Laviolette for the first 10 games. And then even going into the 11th game after Fox and Heedle had sustained those injuries, they still tried to keep things as normal as possible. But after game number 11, that loss that we talked about in Minnesota on Saturday, when we got to practice Monday for the first time, we saw Peter Laviolette make some fairly significant changes to the lineup. A lot of it remained the same as far as the guys that you're looking at on the fourth line and as far as Artemi Panarin and Alexi Lafreniere playing together on the second line. And the D pair is also mostly unchanged except for Zach Jones stepping in for Adam Fox. But even within the D pairs, you could tell he's really not trying to change too much. You still have Miller and Truba who are now sort of the de facto top pair with Fox out and now Eric Gusterson skating with Ryan Lindgren and then the two young guys in Schneider and Jones on the bottom pair. I'm digressing a bit here. My main point is that what we all took notice of right away at Monday's practice was that Capo Kaka, who had skated those first 11 games on the top line with Mika Zabanajad and Chris Kreider, was now, you want to call it demoted, you want to call it moved, whatever you want to say, down on the third line with Will Cooley and temporarily, at least until Hedl comes back, Nick Benino. So, Obviously catches your eye because it looks like Capococco is being sort of scapegoated. And certainly it's been that way from a lot of the fans that I'm hearing from. And so we're going to dive into that a little bit here. The reality of the situation when you look at that top line when it had Kako on it is that they weren't scoring anywhere near enough. You can look at a lot of the metrics, especially a lot of the defensive metrics, and point out that, hey, they still graded out as arguably the Rangers' top line. A lot of the expected goals, categories, shot share, Corsi, all that kind of stuff, they rank number one in most of those categories as far as the Rangers' line combinations are concerned this year. So I think you could look at it and make an argument that says, hey, these guys are really sound defensively. In 11 games, the three of them were only on ice for one goal against in 11 games. The shot rates are way low as far as what they're allowing from other teams. The high danger scoring chances are way low as far as what they're allowing to other teams. So defensively, those guys were rock solid, really good. But as I wrote about last week, the top line, as much as you want them to play good defense, and that's an important part of it, The top line's job is to score goals. And as a line, through those first 11 games, they had only combined for two total goals. Now, I sat down with Capo Caco at the end of the week last week, on Thursday, I believe it was, because I could just tell that he wasn't thrilled with how things were going, that he was expecting more out of himself and not satisfied. Even though the defensive numbers, he knew they were good. He talked about them playing good defense. He said, we need to do better. He was pretty frank and harsh with his criticism, mostly of himself, 
as far as the lack of production is concerned. And you could just tell in that conversation that because he's been down this road before and he's been in situations where he got some playing time in the top six and then ultimately got sent back down to the bottom six, that he felt like if I don't do more to make sure that I earn the responsibility to stay here, then there's a chance I'm going to get moved down soon. So it was almost like he saw the writing on the wall. And lo and behold, a couple days later, that's exactly what happened. So because Kako's the guy that gets moved, I think he becomes the very easy guy for everyone to point fingers at. And again, he has not been good enough offensively this season. I think as good as he is at holding the puck, in traffic areas, especially down low, around the goal line, along the boards, that he's almost become a little bit too reliant on that. And as I spoke with him about the other day, at the time, I think through the first nine games, he only had 13 shots on goal. And I think we talked about this on last week's episode as well, that it feels like by being in those spots on the ice, especially along the boards or below the goal line, that he's taking himself out of a shooting position. He's not a threat to put pucks on the net in that situation. And that's obviously not helping him definitely score more goals, but even produce points in general. He seemed to feel like one of the issues with that line was that they were dumping and chasing a little bit too much, that they were relying on Kako and a lot of times Kreider to go fish pucks out from behind the opposing net when that was often leading to possession just being flipped back in the favor of the opponent, and then it's on them to forecheck and defend and and not produce offense. So he felt like they weren't doing themselves any favors by maybe chipping a little too much instead of trying to control the puck, keep possession, and then establish an offensive zone possession where you really can work the puck around and try to create some looks for yourself. So I think it was a combination of a lot of those things that weren't going well for them. And again, definitely not disputing that Kako did not do enough to solidify his spot on the top line. But the reality is that Kreider and Mika aren't doing a whole lot to hold down those spots either. What they have is veteran status. What they have is an established track record. So obviously those guys aren't going to be the first to get moved down. It's going to be Kako. But you look at the numbers, Kreider, Team high, nine goals through 12 games right now. He's been absolutely on fire, unstoppable with those net front tip-ins. But six of his nine goals have come on special teams. Actually, excuse me, seven of his nine goals have come on special teams. He only has two points, both goals, at five on five. One of them did not come while playing with Zabanajad and Kako. So he only has one goal while playing with those two guys. And... Meanwhile, Kako, two points at five on five, a goal and an assist. And Mika, still 12 games into the season, only has one point at five on five. So I had a tweet about this the other day, and it bears repeating here. Kako is definitely the easy target, definitely deserves some of the criticism for that line not scoring enough. But I don't think it's fair to act like he was this weight that was holding that line down and dismiss the culpability of the other two. As a whole, again, the metrics are good. The defense is good. 
I'm not trying to paint it out like they were a terrible line or they maybe didn't deserve a little more time. You could make an argument that if you gave them more time, the metrics were suggesting that eventually the goals would come. But you also can't deny that two goals from that line in 11 games simply isn't good enough. And so I do think there is an argument that something needed to change, and Kaka was the obvious candidate because, again, you're much less likely, if you're Peter Laviolette, to rock the boat by knocking one of your established stars down to a different line. Kaka was always going to be the first one to go in the event that that line was struggling, and that's what happened. But I think both Zabanajad and Kreider would raise their hands and admit this as much as I'm saying it here, that they are not doing enough at five-on-five either. Mika in particular. With Kreider, you look at the nine goals, and even though only two of them have come at five-on-five, he's been so good for them and had so many clutch goals for them so far this season, it seems kind of hard to criticize him. But Mika, to me, is not offensively anywhere near the level that he was at not just last season, but pretty much ever since I've been on the beat. He still feels like he's searching for it. Those one-timers that he's known for, he looks like he's off a tick on a lot of those. He has gotten a couple power play goals recently, but it just doesn't feel like he's really pushing and attacking and doing those things that Laviolette keeps talking about wanting to see from them as much as he should be at five-on-five. It doesn't feel like the puck is on his stick all that much. So he's a guy that I think absolutely should be under the microscope a bit right now because one five-on-five point through 12 games is not good enough for your number one center. So Kako now makes the move down to the third line. You wonder if this will motivate him. I actually thought the Kreider and Zabanajad looked like they had a little extra jump in their step in that game on Tuesday And I do think that in some ways, even though Kaka was the one that got moved down, that it did send a message to those other two guys that, hey, look, this line needs to pick it up. And it looked like they had a little more juice to their game. I thought on Tuesday they they still did not produce a goal, that line, now that Blake Wheeler is up there playing with them. I have a feeling we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But they did, I think, look better, definitely had more ozone time. I think the scoring chances, according to Natural Stat Trick, when that line was on the ice, were 5 nothing in favor of the Rangers. So a slight step in the right direction for them. Laviolette actually said today that he was very pleased with the way that the lines looked in the game against the Red Wings. But Kako now, you know, he's got to bust down that door. He's back in this position where... Fans are starting to pour it on with him. The doubters are coming out of the closet again. And he's going to have to kick down the door and find a way to make a more noticeable impact to get himself back into the top six. Laviolette said to us the other day that he's very much open to putting him back on that line and still thinks that ultimately that could end up being the spot where he settles in. But he didn't do himself any favors by... I think holding the puck a little too long in certain situations and getting a little too much into that, okay, everybody keeps talking about how good I am at fighting through traffic and and holding the puck instead of being a little more aggressive in terms of getting himself into a a spot on the ice where he's going to have a better opportunity to shoot the puck and have success in that way. I I just don't think he was aggressive enough with his shot, and I think he kind of got pigeonholed into this 
guy who's just going to hold, try to hold the puck below the goal line and along the boards instead of being a guy who's actively trying to get to the net, trying to get to the slot, trying to get into a one-timer position, in his case, as a left-handed shooter from the right circle. So I would just like to see him take on more of that I'm-a-scorer mindset because he looks more like he thinks he's a guy who's just going to dig pucks out and try to facilitate for his teammates. But I think he needs to flip that mindset a little bit would be my opinion. As far as the other two questions, I'll try to quickly hit on them. Who do I feel like the target at the deadline? Well, right wing is definitely going to be at the top of that list right now. I think Lafreniere has been their best right winger so far this season. Kako, as we just talked about, has had his struggles offensively at least. And Blake Wheeler has admittedly, by his own account, said that he's had some struggles. I think he's been a little bit better recently, but I don't know if he's going to be the long-term answer as a top six or top line guy. So right wing would probably be the number one thing right now. And then the other thing I would throw out there is center. If Philip Heedle is having injury issues, you see what this does to the lineup. We talked about it in the first segment where now you have to either play Benino or Gaudreau or Brodzinski as your third line center. That is far from ideal. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Rangers look to add another center at the deadline as well. And then on Othman, listen, I don't think he's coming up anytime soon. He's having a pretty solid start with Hartford. I had been peeking at the stats before. They've played nine games. He's got seven points, two goals, and five assists. Definitely offensively, from what I've been hearing, has been showing that he's capable of being a point producer, at least at the AHL level. But he talked about it when he was here. Those junior habits, as he called them, preparing to play a more well-rounded game where he can be trusted defensively and can be entrusted in all situations and hold up to the, the pace and the speed and the physicality of the NHL, that's all stuff that he's still working through and learning. And so I think from the Rangers' perspective, they'd like to see him get a significant chunk of time in the AHL before they consider calling him up. Second half of the season, is it possible? Absolutely. I think if he's playing well and progressing and developing at the rate that they would like to see, but I don't think there's any rush right now. We just saw it. When the Rangers had an injury, Brodzinski was the first guy that they called up. So Othman, I think, is still a couple notches down in the pecking order just because his development is at a really critical stage right now, and I think they want to see him play at least – let's say 20, 30, 40 games in the AHL before they say, okay, you've earned your way to get an NHL opportunity. Okay, let's get to the next question, which comes from Pistol Pete, 2K3, who wrote, is Lav considering splitting up Kreider and Zabanajad considering their five-on-five production? I think Mika centering Panarin and Lafreniere and then Kreider, Trocek, Kako would be a good top six configuration. Pete, funny you say this, because I was talking to our buddy Colin Stevenson the other day at practice, and I brought up those exact combinations as something that I would be curious to see. Panarin and Lafreniere, I think, are both playing at really high levels, differing levels. Obviously, Panarin is at an elite all-star type of level, where I think Lafreniere is just playing with a lot of confidence, maybe the best that we've seen him play. Obviously not at that Panarin level yet, but making encouraging progress right now. Those two, I think, have really good chemistry going. 
And I talked to Lafreniere about it the other day. I'm going to try to talk to Panarin about it hopefully in the next day or two as well because I'd like to do a story on it. But it just seems like they're reading off of each other well. Their skill sets are meshing pretty well. And I asked Laviolette about it after today's practice, and he said the same thing, that he, he really likes what he's seeing as far as the way that those two are working off of each other. So I don't think you're splitting those two up right now. And they're going really well. Their line has by far been the best as far as five-on-five offensive production. So Mika, as we talked about, struggling, only one five-on-five point through 12 games. What can you do to get him going? Because getting him going needs to be a priority. Well, I think if you play him with arguably the two hottest wingers on the team right now, that could probably be beneficial for him. Now, Kreider, again, Very hot as far as the goal scoring is concerned, but a lot of that, a good chunk of that, is coming on the power play. Him and Mika, as much as they have a history of success together, it just hasn't quite clicked the way that you want it to so far this season. So if you're looking to shake things up, if you're looking to experiment a little and maybe give things a different look, LaViolette the other day called it a change of scenery, that is absolutely something that I would consider is playing Panarin and Lafreniere with Mika. The Panarin Mika thing hasn't always looked great when they played together in the past, but it's always been for such short spurts. So that's something I do wonder if maybe they're considering right now. The other line that you brought up, which would be Kreider, Trocek, and Kako, I I like the look of that line as well. I told you guys earlier, I think Trocek is really having a solid start to the season, a center who does a little bit of everything. And I thought he played well during a stretch when he was with Kreider last year. I believe it was shortly after Thanksgiving till right around Christmas. Those guys had a stretch, and I think it was, as far as point production is concerned, the best stretch that Trocek has had as a Ranger. So I wouldn't be opposed to seeing that line at all either. Right now, as we've touched on, it looks like LaViolette wants to give Wheeler a crack at maybe unlocking some things for Kreider and Zabanajad. I see a few questions in here about Wheeler as well. I do think the last four or five games he's picked it up. I think he has been finding more ways to get the puck on his stick. And his passing ability, his vision, his his reading of the play, I think is still a strong suit for him. What I worry about and what I think at times stood out a little bit on Tuesday, especially a couple situations where he took penalties, he was in the box twice, for taking penalties against the Red Wings is when LaViolette talks about wanting to play at a fast pace and really push things and attack and be aggressive in transition, that is no longer a strong suit for Wheeler. He seems to lag behind the play a little bit. And then if he's lagging behind the play a little bit and it starts going the other way, meaning the other team gets possession and he has to back check really hard, the effort is there, but... That's situations where we saw a couple of those penalties creep in because he just doesn't have the makeup speed that he once did. So I'm curious to see how it looks. I think they're going to give it at least one more game. It sounds like LaViolette was pleased. And again, I I read off the numbers earlier. That line was 5-0 as far as scoring chances against the Red Wings the other night. So definitely more positive than negative from them. But do I see Wheeler as the long-term, season-long solution in that spot? I'm not so sure. I'm going to need to see a lot more before I'm convinced of that. And if I don't get convinced of that, well, then I kind of like Pete's idea of trying 
Zabanajad in between Panarin and Lafreniere, if for no other reason than just to see if maybe that gets Mika going a little bit. All right, let's get to our final question, which comes from John Cougar, Colleen Camp. I see he gave himself an A, so it looks like he's another one of the Rangers' alternate captains. He wrote, do you have any thoughts, takeaways from what you've seen in their work with Humera, meaning the new skills coach, Christian Humera, versus what they were doing or working on with former skills coach, Mark Chaccio? So if I'm being honest, I, I saw a few of you asking about this this week, so I wanted to include it in here. And I'm guessing part of that stemmed from me tweeting out a video of Keandre Miller staying on the ice late to work with Humera today at this optional practice. I haven't noticed as far as the type of things that he's working on with them, a huge difference. It seems to me like a lot of this is dictated by the players. If the player wants to work on specific skills, or a lot of times it's shooting or passing or puck handling, then you see them go to the skills coach and the skills coach will then stay late with them and do the work. I saw Chachio do it for the last four years when I was on the beat. And now I'm seeing a lot of times after practice, it's happening with Humera. So I don't know if there's a huge difference as far as how they're approaching it. As far as the specifics of the drills that they're working on or the skills that they're working on, this is just my maybe somewhat untrained eye watching practice. It does seem like there's a bit more where Humera seems to be incorporating multiple things into one set of movements, which is to say a situation where you might encounter in the game, you're on the move, you're handling the puck, you have to work your way around this particular player and then get a shot off. Like that's what I saw Keandre Miller working on with him today. It was sort of this fluid drill where they had multiple spots set up where he had to get to those spots and then find a way to either make a move or get a shot off. With Chachio, a lot of times it was very specific, like, okay, stationary, we are going to work on shooting here, or okay, we're going to set up the cones here and work on puck handling here. I still see them doing some of the stuff with the cones and the puck handling with, with Humera as well, and this definitely is a question I think I should maybe try to dig in with the players a little bit more to find out specifics. What is Humera bringing that's different? Are there ways that he's helping them? Another thing that comes to mind is that Chachio was a guy who, for many years, and I know I wrote about this a few years ago, has worked for an NHL team. It's always been these bigger group settings where he's got a whole team of guys to deal with and maybe less time to devote into individuals. It's more of a group thinking mindset. Humera comes from a background of doing private, individual, one-on-one lessons, maybe rolling up his sleeves a little bit more, a little more hands-on. So maybe that approach brings something a little different. He's also younger, maybe a little more relatable for some of the current players. I, I know a lot of them love Chachio. He had really good relationships with a lot of the players and definitely used to see them laughing with him all the time and I think there was a lot of respect there, so I certainly don't want to speak poorly of him. Side note, really nice guy and was pretty much a fixture. Like him and Benny Allaire were probably the guys that I saw and got to be around the most in my years because they seemed to survive multiple coaching staffs. But Humera is definitely a 
younger guy with a much different background. I think probably a little more of a new age way of thinking about shooting and puck handling and a lot of the skills that these coaches are responsible for teaching. And I'm definitely noticing that a lot of situations, guys are pulling him aside and asking him to do individual work. And again, that's not a change per se, because that existed with Chachio as well, but it's coming from a new voice now. And and I think that's a topic I'd like to dive into a little bit more at some point this season is what are the differences and what is he bringing to the table now that's maybe fresh and new and helpful. So definitely a good question. I, I can't sit here and tell you that there's one huge difference that just from watching practice I've picked up on that, you know, he does this, whereas the other guy never did that. It's a lot of similar things, and it's mostly just being there for the players when they want to work on stuff. A lot of these guys like to stay late after practice, and they'll pick their spots, and they'll pick their days, and then he's often the guy, as Chachio was before him, who will stay out on the ice with them as long as they want and put in the extra work and, and help them try to refine their skills a little bit more. All right. With that, we are going to call it for this week's episode. A lot of different stuff to talk about with the injuries and the line changes and the ups and downs of the last week or so. But overall, a lot more ups than downs for the Rangers when you think about this record and where they stand at this point early in the season. We'll see if it continues. Got a few more games coming up to finish off this week. Thursday, they host the Minnesota Wild, and then Sunday, they host the Columbus Blue Jackets before they get this weird break in the schedule. They've got a six-day break after that game against Columbus on Sunday, so I'll be back next week after that game at some point with a new podcast, but until then... I want to wish you all well. I want to thank Marty Buran for coming on the show. Thank you to everybody who submitted questions. As always, take care of yourselves, be well, and I will talk to you guys next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.